Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Eric Ostrich. Hello. Josh Adams. Hello. Michael Reese. Hey, everybody. Charles Wood. Hey, folks. And today we are joined by two special guests, James and Bruce. Can you guys introduce yourselves? Go ahead, James. Uh, am I in the right podcast? <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm James Gray. Uh, if you're a really long-time listener of DevChat TV, you might remember Ruby Roads, where I would show up from time to time. And my name is Bruce, and um, I work primarily in the publishing community in the, in the Elixir space, and I'm getting back on the speaker circuit. I worked at I Can Make It Better with, with James. Now I have my own company called Groxio, where we work on developer happiness. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Awesome. And we would, we're excited to have you guys on. You're longtime members of the developer community. And we, uh, you guys have recently launched a new book. And I think that's super cool. We wanted to have you on and talk about that. And uh, one of the things I'd like to know is just as you're thinking about, like, I've never, never authored a book. I've never co-wrote a book. I've never done anything like that. I was just curious about like, how you guys decided to write this together and, and who your kind of target audience is with this book. Ooh, can I tee this one up for you, Bruce? You got it. Um, so you said recently, but this book is forever for me. Like, I'm surprised that people are talking about it now because I've been working on it for a long time. And um, I'm actually really proud of it because this is the third book I've written, and I had no idea how easy the first two were until I wrote this one. Like, the first one was a Ruby quiz book, you know, it was mainly a compilation of uh, some quizzes we ran over the internet. And the second one was a TextMate book. It was kind of like a advanced user manual, you know. But this one is like hardcore tech, right? Like, take the OTP, this super simple thing to explain, and just distill it down in about 200 pages, no big deal, right? Um, so, uh, I asked Bruce about it a long time ago, uh, and started working on it and wrote the first thing and that was terrible. And then it went back to Bruce and I'm like, I'm writing the wrong thing. I got to come at it a different way. Wrote the second thing. That was terrible. Went back to Bruce. We talked about it. And, um, Bruce is like, you should let me help you out with this. And I'm like, you're exactly right. You should help me out with this. <laughs> and uh, Bruce jumped in. So tell him why you jumped in, Bruce. Yeah, so, so James is partially lying 
he says terrible and he's completely right and completely wrong. So um, as with many very intelligent, very insightful people, um, James wants to say everything all at once. And, um, and so um, what's, what's interesting is James has this, this voice for the Elixir community that's not the same as the voices of every, everyone that's, that's been around since its exception. It came a little bit later. And why that's important is that he has some per, uh, perspectives that are different from the many different languages he's been exposed to from the program contents, uh, contests, from the, um, just this, the o- overall community, um, the many communities that he's been a part of. And um, so when he said that's terrible, what he was missing was the, was the ability to distill things. Uh, and it's, it's a very difficult thing to do when you're writing a book like this um, because you have to keep three hats on all at the same time. The first hat is you've got to be the fountain of interesting. And, and James is very good at that, has always been very good at that. The second thing is that you have to be um, an editor, a distiller. So you have to take the, um, the ideas and pull out the things that aren't important. And the third thing that, that you've got to be is, um, is transition. And you have to be transition in a book like this means that you're, you're transitioning from one part of the code to another. You're transitioning from code to test. You're transitioning between concepts in the code. You're transitioning between layers of the architecture. And all those dimensions are too much for any one person to handle. So it's, so I jumped in on this book and, um, and took some of the things that James had said, and, and we basically put it aside and then said, okay, if we were to do this from scratch, what would we do? What would, what would our organization be? And then James said, well, the application would look like this, and he spit out six layers. And then I put this dumb mnemonic on the six layers, uh, do fun things with big loud wildebeest. And that kind of stuck. And, and, uh, and our editor gradually went from frowning all the time to a little bit happier. And uh, we put it in front of, of people. And they went from, I don't get this, to I really get this, to this is awesome. I've never seen it presented this way. So it's just uh, you know, two people working together in their strengths. James for the fountain of interesting and and the uh, and the well of knowledge and me for for voice and community and and things like that. I don't know how many times I will explain something, and I'm one of those persons who just has to hit all the things. So like I'll explain it, and then I'll be like, oh, but sometimes it doesn't work like that. Oh, and don't forget this one edge case. Oh, and when you get to this, you'll have to think of this. And Bruce is sitting over there and he's like, James, you've kind of lost the plot. You know, like you, uh, you definitely lost the reader, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm just, my, my greatest skill as an author is I know how to lie. <laughs> Good authors have to know how to lie. They have to, they have to say, this is it. Well, and there's this one extra thing, right? And, and it's knowing when to, when to correct all the lies you've told along the way. That's kind of the knack for writing. Um, I'm curious, as you guys were doing this, so you, you talked about kind of a few early attempts and coming back around. 
Um, that almost sounds like a recipe for getting kind of a second system syndrome, but for a book. Uh, did you feel like that was something that was difficult to deal with? But now that you had so many ideas that you had generated and thought about, that it became difficult to pick what was what was the core, what was the essence of the book? Actually, what what we did was we took all the stuff that James had written and and we said that we're not going to start with this foundation. Um, we we wound up incorporating every single one of the thoughts. But what we what we did was we said, okay, we need a um, we need an overarching organization, and we started there. And once we did, the book got really easy to write. So um, so I came up with. Uh, with a kind of a, we went from from having the idea of having a metaphor of a cookie that just didn't work. It was really bad advice uh, that I kind of saddled James with in a really early attempt to this system of layers and talking about them from many different perspectives. So our flow was James would write a slice of an application based on on the strength of of his work at I can make it better and also um, and also no red ink and. So he'd write that application, uh, and, and then we'd kind of talk together about the things that would be important for the, the readers. Really, we, we wound up targeting intermediate readers, but it's, it's also a good book for, for um, more, more beginners and, and experts as well. But we targeted intermediates. And, and so he basically did a dump and said, these are the things that I think that the reader should, should know about. And then I took a pass. James took a pass and our excellent editor, Jackie Carter, took a pass. And, and so, yeah, I guess it was very much a second, a second system syndrome. So I think we should probably mention the name of this book. The, the link to it is in the show notes, uh, but it's uh, Designing Elixir Systems with OTP, Writing Highly Scalable Self-Healing Software with Layers. So that inco- incorporates the layers you're talking about there. And I'm glad you identified because like, you know, whenever there's a book and I'm, I'm a potential buyer of the book, I, I kind of want to know, is this for me? Like, is, if I'm totally new to Elixir, am I going to find my way through this? Is that going to make sense? It sounds like you're kind of targeting the experienced person who maybe has some Elixir experience and is trying to take it to the next level and trying to really get OTP. Is that right? So I'd like you to take a shot at that, James, especially from the perspective of, of the whole idea of pushing OTP to the back end of the title. Yeah, that's, I think that's the key. I would say the answer to your question, Mark, is yes. Like this absolutely should not be the first book you read about Elixir. If that happens, you will run away screaming, I'm sure. Um, but uh, in, in reference to the, you know, well, isn't this kind of the second or third or fourth version of this book? Uh, that I, I learned a lot from my early attempts. And what I learned, I think most importantly, is no one wants an OTP book, though everybody thinks they do. And what they want is a book about how to design Elixir or Lang Beam applications, how to build software. And OTP is often the right answer or at least a very good answer, right? But, uh, but nobody wants, like, nobody's like, I want to learn the OTP just to learn the OTP. You want to learn the OTP so you can understand what's going on. I listened to uh, the episode between 
uh, Josh and Michael a little bit back about um, production. Oh God, what was it? It was great alliteration. Production problem parables or something. I don't remember. It was something like that. Um, I don't remember either. It was great. It was it was good alliteration. I'm mad. I can't remember it now. But um, we talked about like uh, the different parts of production, understanding, um, you know, uh, clustering and things like that. So you could know when to bring it in and when not to bring it in. And, and uh, you talked about deployments, Kubernetes, protection, pitfall, pontification. It was great alliteration. Way better than the version I made up. Um, and uh, you, you were talking about how understanding these pieces helps you understand what's going on, you know, in your production environment and how it all relates together. And that's basically what the OTP is, right? If you have to answer what happens when you type, you know, my app start in a release, the technical answer is something like, well, one or more OTP applications is started, which means one or more supervision trees is brought up, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but I just want to run some code at startup. How do I do that? You know? And that's basically what this book is about. It's about understanding that sequence, that system enough that you could say, run some code at startup if you wanted to. Well, this, this reminds me a little bit of what I see in other communities too, like people who learn Rails and then they learn Ruby and they realize how much power there's underneath it, right? So they understand the underlying technology, the same thing with a lot of the front end frameworks. People get in, oh, I can do so much with this. And then they learn JavaScript, you know, and it's the, the understand underlying power, right? So it's the same thing here. It's, okay, what are the mechanisms that are in place? What is it doing? How is this put together? What, you know, what are all the little pieces in the chain? And then it's like, oh, okay, now I understand how I can take advantage of all these things. Very much so. And I think that one of the things that we saw along the way was, we were able to take a fresh look at some of the design patterns and um, really some of the tooling and, and some, some, of the, some of the takes that, that have come over mainly based on the strength of the community that Elixir brought, brought with it. You know, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of Ruby developers in our midst and a lot of them have a Rails background. A lot of them are thinking in terms of active record. And one of the things that we really wanted to do was challenge people to reimagine those basic design patterns. So building the classic layers of a system allowed us to rethink, for example, where does persistence fit? Is that a boundary concern or is that a core concern? And everyone says, well, persistence is a boundary concern, but then we turn around and, and we, we, build, um, we build systems with a lot of persistence right at the very beginning um, in fact, our context generators generate these, these persistent models, put a context on top. And that has a crippling impact on the architecture if you think of every problem in that way, right? So we were able to say, okay, well, what happens if we start with a pure base? And what happens if we attach persistence as a dependency? Not that it's less important as a concern or an issue, but that 
if we are able to push it to give people a toolbox to push those concerns back to the boundary when they belong, then we get some pretty significant benefits from that. And that's, that's basically what the book's about. So you've, you've kind of hinted that this a bit, but um, can you explain what your, uh, the do fun things with big loud wildebeest uh, actually stands for? Yes. So, um, so it took me a while to, to win James over, you know, and, and when, when James doesn't agree with something, um, he's, he's a very agreeable guy, but what you get is radio silence for a little while, right? I, so he's, he's going to take some time and process it. But the idea is to give people a mental framework, a mental mnemonic for thinking about the layers in a typical system. Not that you'll use them all, but do fun things stands for D, data, F, functions, T, tests. And we could have put the tests anywhere, right? But we chose to put them in the core where we have the opportunity to do things like property tests because that's where uh, testing methodology is going. And then with big, loud wildebeest, that's boundaries, life cycles, and workers. And the interesting one there is you don't see S for supervision anywhere, right? And the reason is that we believe that when you get the life cycle right, the failover and the supervision style comes almost for free. So we teach people to think in terms of startup options and claim teardown and how you tier and layer those with supervision trees and then, and then they naturally get supervision and where that takes them from starting up and shutting down clean to restart to, um, to OTP as we know it. I, I so, kind of want to, um, I'm all about the results, right? You know, what, what's the outcome? What am I going to get out of this? And, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, kind of understanding the foundations and fundamentals. Um, the book title alludes to uh, scaling and self-healing. Um, but but what does this actually look like? You know, so if I if I go in and I apply some of these techniques, you know, wh what is it actually going to do for me in my application? Because whether we should or not, you know, we all look at the numbers off of our app and go, oh, it's slow, or oh, it you know it it has these problems, or it generates this many bugs, or whatever, right? And so, yeah, have you seen specific increases in resilience or scalability or things like that by using these techniques? So I think that that one of the things that the Elixir community is facing is that we've been offered this giant toolbox. And, and in some ways, this is this is a bigger toolbox than than Erlang developers had to start with, right? Because we have other systems like macros and you know the Broadway and and some of the things that people have built. And then we have some abstractions that are getting thrown at, at us that really do have these scalability numbers that, that you're talking about and that we alluded to. And folks don't understand how to integrate or where to integrate their code in the overall scheme of things. And so we, we produce this sample application with all the layers in it, and then we give people a mental framework for thinking about, well, okay, if you're working with LiveView, where do the layers sit in that application? Or if you're working with Scenic, um, why don't I see context? Where would they be? Or when you're managing dependencies, should I pick context? Should I pick umbrellas? Should I put, pick Git dependencies? Or what about the hybrid approach of Apache? So um, it's it's actually taking the toolbox that's been available for those things for a very long time and helping people understand where to build pieces. And then once you've got that, 
unit, um, call it an application, call it com a component. I really don't care. But once you have that unit, how do you tie those together in dependency trees and and context and the like? And I would say that, yes, it absolutely does have an effect on the final system that you can actually see and even measure if you want. And the way I would say that is, you know, you spend some time thinking about the life cycle of your system. How does this come out? How does this get triggered? How do these two things happen at the same time? But the truth is that when you get all of that right, then all the magic of the beam and the promises that we all came here for, you know, oh, the supervision, it'll fix my stuff, it'll go faster. This is how you get there, right? You have to get the life cycle right and the, the setup of the system right so that the beam understands how to intervene, right? Some process died. It was set uh, restart permanent, meaning it wasn't supposed to die, right? So what's the supervisor's job? Grab it, feed it in known good state, and get it back on its feet, right? That's the, that's the promise of the beam. That's how you run forever, right? That's how you recover from unexpected errors. That's how you do things concurrently, things like that. So yeah, I would say it ends up in real measurable effects down the road. And I would add that um, one of the things that James brought to this overall effort is he thought about development holistically and not just not just uh, OTP programming, but also functional programming. And what does functional programming mean for a data structure? What does it mean to to write in functions where functions are a high end, um, a, a first class data type? what are some of the patterns that we see with this style of dynamic programming uh, that as, as it's exposed in OTP. So, so yes, we, we address all of the things in the title, but not the way that you expect. We, we don't, we don't show you the options to throw at uh, your, um, you know, mix.exs and, and application.ex. Um, we, we basically, show you how to build and layer things so that so that the all these marvelous services work the way they were intended to i i just wanted to quickly interject um for some listeners especially that are might be newer to elixir um there's there are some really immediate measurable results that i think people can expect to see in some of the early applications so uh the second elixir application that i ever actually tried to build for a job um when I first put it up, we found a new edge case in our front end code base because what would happen is that it was listening to the Elixir application for live updates. And it was also sending RESTful API calls to a Ruby backend. And the edge case we found was that the live update would come in before the process, uh, the response had been received from the RESTful API. And this had never happened before because of the, app, the normal latencies involved with JSON serialization and active record and other things on the Ruby side. Um, and uh, that was amazing to me that the Elixir application, I was still fairly new to Elixir at the time, and I had done nothing really special. I was just following the basic uh, Phoenix patterns, and it worked amazingly well. Uh, after I left that job, about a year later, I got a message from a friend who was still working at that job, and he said, hey, we had to upgrade... Um, 
upgrade a version of Elixir on that application the other day. And I just wanted to send you a note that it, we realized it had been running for over a year in production without having been restarted. Same VM, same operating system process for over a year. And I have never written a system that did that for over a year. And I, I wrote it as a relatively new person. I think what this book is trying to give you as an Elixir developer is if you now want to go a little bit beyond the edges of just what's inside the Phoenix patterns, and you want to build some of your own code that kind of does those kinds of patterns, and you're going to fit well into the OTP framework, into what the Beam gives you, here's some ways to think about your code so that it will naturally slide in and gain those same benefits that things like Phoenix and Ecto, um, can, they try to give you out of the box as long as you can use them the way they intend to be used. And now we're stepping one layer back. You can build your own Phoenix if you want to. You can build your own Ecto. Would you guys say that's a fair characterization? I hope everyone on this audio podcast can see how much I'm nodding. Yeah, I fully agree. It's funny. You could have gotten the same story just about verbatim from Bleacher Report. In fact, Ben tells the story at... You know, for, for a lot of conferences, he gave this talk on, on what it's like to adopt Elixir. And he said they didn't know anything about what they were doing. And the first service that they built basically did everything that they expected it to um, tenfold. And um, yeah, so, so what, what we're talking about in the book is, so, okay, if you can, if you can build those systems, how do you take the scalability to the next level by using data structures the way that they're intended to be used? How do you layer your functions in such a way that they're easy, easy to test and that they don't step on each other? How do you build this boundary service such that it serves as a beautiful, clean API that doesn't hide the machinery, but ex exposes just enough of the complexity just when you want it? How do you layer on top of that the life cycle so that it snaps into um, to the whole supervision um, Elixir ecosystem the way that you expect to. And then how do you supplement that? How do you sprinkle that with the process machinery that you need to build on your own or absorb through dependencies for things like connection pools and timers and the like? Yeah, it's, that, that was a, a great synopsis of, of what we did. And you probably just got a great idea from listening to Bruce kind of walk through the layers there. I'm going to tell you the ugly truth. This is not the easiest book you will ever read. Like the examples in it are a touch more complex, I think, than examples usually are in a programming book. And uh, <laughs> Bruce is holding up hands. This is not good. He's measuring things. Um, the, uh, you know, it's, uh, I've watched people reading it, like uh, in the book clubs on the Elixir forum and stuff. And I've read their feedback and um, a lot of people say, yeah, that was a good chapter. I'm definitely going to have to go back and read it again, you know, to make sure I understand what's going on there to make sure it sinks in. And you have to make a lot of trade-offs when you decide to write a book. For example, a really straightforward one is um, to make all the examples completely independent from each other, which uh, really helps when somebody wants to just jump into the book somewhere and read because the examples set standalone, right? Or do you make the examples flow through the whole book? Then the examples are more realistic, they're better, but it also means if you jump in in the middle, you're a little bit lost, right? Um, and so you have all these trade-offs you have to make. 
And I don't think our book is like a crazy hard book or anything like that. There's books I've read that I still reread every so often, and I hope someday I'll understand it, you know, and this is not one of those, but um, it is a harder than normal straight up programming book. And that's because we're talking about really complicated ideas and trying to approach them in a reasonable way, right? Like, how can I get use out of this? Not how can I understand all of the special behaviors that OTP includes and why, right? Well, I, I expect a lot of the audience for this book is probably coming from object-oriented system backgrounds. And I'm just curious from your guys' perspective and you know, interacting with the community and people and getting feedback, are there common misunderstandings or, or kind of hangups that people have that you see uh, that you've been maybe trying to address with the book that just help people kind of make that bridge and get there and, you know, better? A great example is we actually start the book with, with at, at, the, at the later, at, at the bottom layer. I think that the one chapter title that we held over from James's book is Start with the Right Data. And uh, so the example that we start with is the idea of a bank account. Now, if you're building an object-oriented system, you say, oh, that's easy. I, I see that there's, a, um, there's some data, there's a balance, right? There are um, two main functions, debit and credit, and then there's probably, then we can kind of bolt on some, some additional code to, um, to handle things like transactions and an audit trail. But with a functional data system, we're going to start with the audit trail, right? So we'd like to be in a place where everything is strictly additive and the balance is computed. Uh, and maybe we can't go all the way back to the beginning of time, but we can certainly go back to a checkpoint or we can use, we could, we could fall back on the balance as a check um, instead, of, instead of actually recomputing all the time. But functional, functional data, uses the concept that we're building on past facts. And so it's, it's a nice thing to be able to start from the beginning and address our readers as they're coming in. And frankly, all of us are, are still evolving the way that we think from, from our past, whether we're coming from a language that's more strongly typed, whether we're coming from an object-oriented system, or whether we're, we're just jumping from Erlang to Elixir. All, all those people are coming from somewhere. And it was nice to be able to say, okay, um, if you're coming from this place, this is what's familiar to you, and this is what's gonna be a little bit different. One thing I'm wondering about is with a lot of these books, so I, I wound up writing a book on how to find a job as a developer, and it's, it's specifically how to find your dream job. Um, I started out writing it for new developers and quickly found that there were a lot of experienced people that needed it. And so I'm curious, as you wrote this book and got feedback, were there things you figured out, oh, I need to put this in here too? Or you figured out, you know what? A lot of people aren't really getting a whole lot of value out of this. So we're going to take it out and we're going to kind of simplify it and add it to another chapter or something like that. James, you want to take a shot? We definitely did some of that. Um, we listened to all the feedback and... Um, and, you know, it's hard, like you have to make tough choices. Uh, I know one person at one point, one of the reviewers, you know, complained 
uh, you kind of introduce these concepts kind of early and you don't really explain them very much. And it's like, yeah, we go on to explain them later. And, and if we stop and explain them now, then now you derail the whole train, you know, and, and we talked about that. Bruce and I had, you know, I, I don't want to say arguments because I won about all of them, of course. So uh, we threw down. We threw down. <laughs> we, would, we would get into it over individual words. I don't know how much you guys have thought about like how unbelievably hard the OTP is to explain. Like, for example, um, we were just having a conversation about what confuses people coming from other paradigms. And it's like, oh, okay, we're going to teach you this thing called OTP. What's that? What's it stand for? No, I don't want to tell you that. Uh, uh, oh, and it has these things called applications. No, no, no. Not how you think that word's defined. Not how you've heard it used before. It's something completely different, you know? It's almost a ridiculous thing to kind of try and talk about, right? And we would, we would debate over individual words. Are we allowed to say this here? You know, will they know what we mean? Um, so yeah, it's complicated and it's difficult to teach, but um, I think we did a good job in the end of, you know, well, the best job that we could do. Um, and we got a lot of feedback from uh, people about, you know, yeah, this is complicated or can we ease this up or could we get into this um, more gradually? And um, But at the same time, we did want the book to be one of those that you could come back to someday and read it again and maybe get a little bit more out of it, you know, uh, as you got further along and understanding the uses of the layers and things like that. Also, the other thing I guess I want to say about all that, it makes it sound like, oh, this book is 10 layers of hard. And, uh, and I think the best thing, one of the best things Bruce brought, which was many, is his pragmatism and how much he toned down things. Like, he's like, yeah, we have these seven layers. You know what? If you don't need one of them, throw it out. <laughs> you know, like, they're all optional. Everything is optional. You know, if it's hard, um, don't do it. Uh, if it's not helping you, don't do it. And he was extremely pragmatic. Like, he would sneak things in on me that, like, I never would have allowed, and then as soon as he did it, I could tell, oh, he was totally right. Um, and a good example is um, uh, the functional core part. We were writing that, and uh, we had to do random number generation, and he just threw that in the functional core, and he's like, it's fine. It's still part of our core business logic. It's, uh, it's the core thing. It's not at a higher level. And then I'm in, I'm having all these fits. I'm like, but it's not functional. And Bruce is like, ah, it's pretty much the same thing in this case. You know, it's just let it slide. <laughs> yes, we did a lot of things like, um, like, like James says, the, the random num number generator. We would say things like, you know, this is the trade off that we made. This is why we made the trade off. We're, we're not going to, um, move all the timestamps out to our boundary, right? Uh, because that, that doesn't make sense from a logic perspective, but here's the cost that we have to pay. So now we have to jump through these three or four different hoops to, um, to make sure that we test the, the random numbers. So um, this is the decision that we made, and this is why we made that decision. And what's interesting about writing a book like this is that, so some of the opinions 
some of the times that we threw down, um, you know, we were in violent agreement with each other, but we had to basically decide how certain concepts were going to play in the community, right? So we struggled with the idea of how to deal with dependencies in the application. Did we want to do context? Did we want to do umbrella applications? Did we want to do Git dependencies or Poncho dependencies? And we went back and forth um, a few times. And, and where we landed was that this is a potentially destructive conversation within, within our community. So what we'll do is say, hey, we'll, we'll, we had to make a choice because we had to make a choice, but any of these work, these are the trade-offs that you're making. We're, tra we're, we're trading this amount of ceremony for this coupling. And um, this is where it's going to bite you, and this is where it's going to pay dividends. So make the choice that's right for you. As a reader of the book, I have to say that I really love the balance you guys struck in terms of where do you put those little kind of notes. So um, for people who haven't started reading yet, they have these little info blocks that kind of they fall within the pros of the book as you're reading through. And you can just kind of ignore them if, uh, if you're not interested or thinking to yourself like, well, wait, why do they do this? But whenever I found myself thinking, wait, why would they make this choice? Uh, within a few paragraphs, I would always see one of these little info blocks and it would, it would say something like, hey, we decided to put random number generators inside our function. We know we're gonna end up, uh, this makes it not purely functional. We're not too interested in guaranteeing pure functionality here but this is gonna come back and we'll have to show you how we deal with it in our test later. Um, and those kinds of little asides were great. And actually I would love to ask a follow-up question. As, as I was reading through, I was in the data structures uh, portion of the book. Um, you guys talked about, hey, these, the way we came up with these data structures came from a few iterations of trying out ideas. We're gonna skip the iterations and just show you the ones that work. Um, when you guys were going through those iterations, did you take any feedback from other layers of your application? Did you consider, oh, how does this interact with the fact that we will be doing HTTP or that we are going to be going to a database? Do you consider those things while you're designing your structs or do you actually intentionally avoid thinking about those other layers while you're choosing your data structures? I want to hear Bruce's answer to this before I throw in my own. Okay, so I'm going to answer the, the question that I think that you're asking, and that's um, how did we land on the set of features that's actually in the book? Um, and, are, and the question is, are we talking about the data layer or are we talking about the persistence layer and the boundary? So I was mostly thinking about when I was looking at those structs, I kind of, my brain immediately did think about how am I going to persist these? And I'm wondering if your advice to me as a reader would be, Try not to worry about that right now. Just try to get the data layer right. Okay, so I would love to talk about this because it's basically these uh, couple of months. Well, I guess it's, is it years now, James, that we've worked on this together? Let's not talk about that. Oh, man. Uh, sorry sorry uh, to, to do that short little bit of harm. But um, so, yeah, w one of the transformations in my personal programming has been to wait on the persistence. And when I wait on the persistence, it doesn't mean that I'm giving less weight in the architecture to what the persistence will look like. It means that I am trying to take the time to let some of the concepts in, in that 
in that layer, in that data layer, the pure data layer coalesce before I think about persistence. So um, one of the painful things that's happened, happened to me lately is uh, I built a lesson model for um, initially for Elixir, I was going to roll it out to other languages. And the idea was that um, we could build these courses and people who were new to Elixir and actually new to programming at all could jump into these courses and they could learn a core, um, a core bit of Elixir and, and get motivated and see visualizations and things like that um, before they actually had to uh, bite the bullet and install, which is really potentially a derailing process particularly on Windows where most of the world lives, right? So um, I wound up throwing this away because it didn't work the way I expected it to. I put it in front of my mentees as a test customer set, and they didn't learn the way I expected it to, and it became clearer that I'd have to do some other, have to supplement it in, in, in certain ways. So I tabled that product. But one of the things that I learned is if I build the system and think in terms of the data and evolve the data as purely an OTP construct, I gain so much by delaying that persistence choice. So um, every developer, when they come, when, when, when they butt up against a particularly arduous task, like for example, thinking about migrating data building migrations, changing the structure of a database schema alongside all of the, all the structs that live in our application, it, it impacts decision-making, right? And so um, I would say that by waiting on persistence, not ignoring everything, all, all the persistence decisions altogether, but by waiting on primarily the way that the data hangs together before we persist it, we gain so much. No, I, I just believe we gain a lot. Yeah, I think I'm in the same uh, same place where I feel like um, Michael's question really gets to the heart of it. You know, okay, you're laying out some struct in the beginning, and you put these three fields in it, and you think, but I know when I take it to HTTP, I'm going to have to have these other two fields. Do you put them in at the beginning or do you not, right? There's, yeah, I mean, it says, don't do it, don't do it, you'll change your mind. Um, but then, you know, there's also times when you know how it's going to go, you know, like, yeah, sure, things are going to change, you're going to be unaware of stuff, and you can put it in there. I think my big decision uh, of whether or not I do it now or whether or not I hold off is I, uh, I like to ask myself really quickly, if I'm completely wrong about this, how much, how much pain am I about to inflict here, right? If I'm completely wrong and tomorrow my boss says, rip all this out, right? How much pain is it? Can I do it really quickly? Is it gonna be a pain in the butt? Um, if it's easy to undo, then I'll put it in if I think it's gonna be needed. Uh, if it's not easy to undo, if it's going to cause me to stop and do a lot of mental gymnastics now, I'll push it because I'd rather think about the thing I'm trying to think about now than the other things I'm trying to think about. Um, so, you know, if it's a field here or there, you know it's going to be needed, whatever, stick it in. If it's going to be hard, if it's going to make you think about different things, if it's going to be tough to change your mind or rip out later, don't do it. 
what's beautiful is that we've, we've gotten a few tools to, we've added a few tools to the toolbox that we didn't have a little while ago. One of them is LiveView. And that means that we can build, basically, we could flesh out the functional core and we could experiment with the persistence with just that data layer and a few functions wrapped around it. And we can iterate super quickly with LiveView. And it turns out that Scenic is shaped pretty much the same way. So I had an interesting conversation with Jose a little while back. We were actually talking about this book and about the Phoenix book and how much, how deeply that we should go into LiveView. And he said, he said, Bruce, you know, and that kind of, the kind of sing-song voice that, that Jose has. But he said that, look, from your perspective, LiveView is an OTP application. And the layers are going to fit into LiveView the same way that they fit into an OTP application, right? And so um, one of the things that he talked about was that a lot of what he has done to Elixir is building this architecture where it's turtles all the way down. And so that means that what we're seeing as higher end abstractions pop up, they're starting to look more and more alike. And what's interesting is that they're, they're taking this shape that's very much a functional, a functional shape and very much a, um, gosh, they used to call it reactive, right? Uh, but the idea where you build this data model somewhere and then have um, some observation somewhere else. And rather than build that same thing in multiple places um, and, and distributing that application, it's living in one place where, um, where we could kind of iterate rapidly. And the idea of, of cooking your data structures with, with simple structs and then either adding persistence on after the fact or adding persistence on in a different layer is just tremendously attractive when you can mix in, you know, the, the, the high speed, um, you know, the, the prototyping that we can get with, with live view and, and um, now scenic as well. So I can just say the book as described is definitely one that I'm purchasing. So that, that feels good. I didn't know that going into this conversation. That's great. Uh, that's a, there's another, there's another thing that's buried in there, right? We are not, purchasing books in the way that we used to as a development community. I can remember there's a, there's a guy named David Carey and he wrote a lot of the, the tremendously successful books in the Java space and he did nothing but write. And um, what the community, what the Java community got out of David, David Carey was pretty spectacular. He was able to, to think about the layers of Java and Java architecture and, and, um, and how to layer things through a user interface and into the controller layer. And that, that, came, from, that came from basically a community uh, rallying behind this person and, and supporting them. Well, we don't have something similar right now. So, um, so I'm not really talking about James and I, we're both doing fine. But, um, but yes, when you get a chance support authors this this is this isn't going to last forever you know this is an industry that's that's starting to struggle and writing books is getting harder and more and more of that writing process is start, is happening in the public eye um, when you know one book like this can can swallow um, one or two people for tremendous chunks of time I'm gonna switch us gears just for a minute um, we kind of talked about this not being the first elixir book you want to pick up 
So what, what are some of the things that you're going to need to understand that are not covered by the book before you pick it up and, and really are able to take advantage of it? All right. I feel like I have to jump in here first because Bruce is going to have to come and name some pragmatic titles. And I'm, I'm a total fan of that, but I got to sneak it in. The one book you should read first, Elixir in Action by Sasha Yurik. <gasps> book. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the Prags. I'm sorry to Andy. I love you guys. I wrote three books for you guys, but the links are in action. So that's a year. That's where it starts. That or you get results. Just, just I agree. Put. That one was totally helpful for me. Like I, I read uh, Dave Thomas's book first and I kind of honestly just it for my learning style or whatever it was, it's just, I kind of struggled with it and I thought I'll, I'll try Elixir in action. And I did. And I just, it totally clicked with me. And I thought it was awesome. And that was like kind of, kind of the book that really unlocked it for me. So yeah, I plus one to that. Let me also add that there, there are a couple of resources. Um, you know, Tatiana, um, what's her last name, James? Uh, that is a great question. I don't know. Yes. yes. So basically this, this woman um, from, I believe, Ukraine has built these um, Elixir cards that are tremendous resources for, for learning Elixir and for stepping up your game. Um, you know, that's, that's, they're definitely worth a look. The Elixir School stuff is absolutely brilliant. If you're into the video stuff, there's um, Mike Clark has an excellent uh, video series on learning Elixir. I think that that's fantastic. Um, if you're learning Phoenix, I just finished, um, we actually sent today the book to the publisher with, with um, Jose, Chris McCord and I, um, Programming Phoenix does a great job of, of showing, um, you know, if, if you were to build a monolithic Phoenix application, um, you know, how, uh, how you take a, a request and send it through plugs all the way through the controllers and the views. But that actually, that actually also is a great way to think about how you, how you build modern Elixir systems. So um, I would add all those things. That Phoenix book is very good. Um, if you want to know about Phoenix, I did a huge review of it on the Elixir forum chapter by chapter as I went through it. And in there, I would sometimes complain about things. And Bruce and Jose went back and read all my complaints and fixed them um, as they were working on the book. So that book's awesome, um, actually. I think one other resource that might be great for people who are just getting into Elixir, um, if, if you're still trying to understand why would I learn Elixir, what do I get out of this? And you're at the very beginning. There's a presentation called The Soul of Erling that Sasa Yurich, also the book, uh, also the author of the book that was talked about recently gave. Um, and it, he does an amazing job of laying out, here's maybe how your application would handle this kind of failure today, or here's how you might try to debug this kind of problem in your current stack. And here's why doing it on the beam would make everything totally different for you. Um, and I, I've, I've never seen a more succinct representation of here's what you might get out of using the beam. So if you're, if you're, if you're just trying to like decide whether it's worth buying a book, reading a book, writing some Elixir, highly recommend that presentation. Um, and then from there, I think all of the books and uh, cards and, and other things that have been talked about are, are great uh, introductions um, once you've decided that it's worth investing some of your time into. I have to plus one that talk. 
the very first thing Sasha does in that talk is basically start an infinite loop that would slay any other programming language. And then he gives his entire talk with that infinite loop running while he's interacting with the system and doing stuff and messing around. The system just runs fine the whole time. And you can watch this chart through the entire talk as it's just hammered by this thing he started at the very beginning. It is so great. Also, Sasha Urich, recurring pattern here, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that reminds me just in general, this episode will go out a few weeks before ElixirConf. And one of the things that I have found as I've, you know, I, I, I start a new podcast and then I go into a new community, right? And one of the things I find that's really helpful is going to the conference and kind of rubbing shoulders with people who are doing it at a higher level than I am and just being able to talk to people and get answers to my questions and, and, and have that interaction in real time. It, it's so valuable. So if you have a chance to go, whether you're new or whether you're experienced, uh, you should probably give a, a hard look at ElixirConf and see if you're going to be there. Um, and I don't know who on this panel is going to be there, but uh, yeah, it's coming up at the end of August. So, James, you're doing a training there, right? Yes, I am. Uh, aren't you, Bruce? Not a training, but I'm giving a talk there. So I have a mentor group um, that we're actually building a photo booth. And um, it's using Live View to kind of screen the photos that get created. There's a, um, a hardware booth with nerves. There's a, um, a scenic element of it. And I'm building it with um, women and minorities that meet um, pretty much um, once once a week, every Thursday. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very proud of it. We'll actually, um, we'll actually debut that photo booth at Gig City Elixir, which is um, a conference that's right on the, the tails of Elixir Comp. It's in the, the Southeast in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And um, we'll also take the photo booth to, um, to our other conference, which is Lone Star Elixir. This is the first year that Maggie and I will put that one on. Um, so yeah, and there's another mental group that's, um, that's being started by a woman named Vanessa Lee, who actually gave her first technical talk at, um, at a conference at Code.io in um, Code Elixir in London. Um, that was a fantastic talk, and, and she'll be picking up the effort in Austin, Texas. I got to say about some of those conferences, uh, Bruce is right, that I'll be at Elixir Conf and uh, come say hi if you're there. Uh, I'm doing a training with uh, Paul Dawson, which I'm still surprised everybody does not know him as well as uh, they know me. Uh, you should seek out Paul Dawson and talk to him because like super smart guy. Uh, he built our entire Elixir deployment from scratch, just like, you know, over lunch practically because that's just what he does. Um, super smart guy. We're giving a training about releases, uh, the new OTP online release system, how does it compare to distillery? What is a release? What do you have to know to do releases? Now that I have this release, how do I actually deploy it to like AWS or something like that? Uh, so super fun training, we're working hard on that. And I know it's gonna be awesome because I've already learned so many great things from it, uh, from Paul. And so, yeah. Uh, that's going to be fun. And the Gig City Elixir, I'm super bummed that I cannot make it over there this year. I was there last year, easily the best conference I attended last year. Super great conference. And you should check it out. Yeah, Chattanooga is a fun town too. So, great. 
So one question I have is like, as someone, you know, you're, you're delivering this book to the community and you're hoping it's helpful for people. Is there one big message or understanding you want people to take away from this book? Yeah. So my main, my main bit of understanding, well, the main lesson for this book, I believe is that when you want a good Elixir system, you start with design first. And design means how do you layer the system in such a way that you expose a little complexity at a time? That matters a lot. Awesome. And I, uh, sorry, I'll let you go, James. Um, yeah, I like, I really like what Bruce said. I think sometimes we have kind of a reaction to uh, avoiding falling into the waterfall pattern, you know? So that means obviously we can't do any design upfront, which is ridiculous, right? Like uh, 10 minutes with, uh, you know, a graphing program, just drawing some boxes, you know, will really help or, uh, you know, some sticky notes, you know, just arranging a little bit. Um, sometimes that really pays off. Um, but I think my, uh, I think my takeaway uh, is, is similar but different. And it's that um, the Beam gives you these tools. We talk about that a lot, that it provides the best concurrency tools, the best uh, recovery tools, reliability tools, and stuff like that. But how you arrange them is up to you. There's no right answer, right? Like there's Sure, there's things that are probably easier, better, more straightforward. I guess we can say, but you're, you know the needs of your app and it's going to be different from every other app. That's why it's your app. And you have to get to the point where you understand this stuff just enough that you can make the choices for your app. So mine is kind of a, a continuing learning, you know, constant improvement. I think that's, uh, that's what I'm always striving for anyway. That's awesome. Uh, so the only other question I had is, I was just kind of curious, I'd never really heard how you guys came to the Elixir community. I know James, you'd been in the Ruby community for a long time. I'm just like, uh, you know, I kind of found my way here. I know my, the way I got here and I know a little bit more about Michael and some of the other guys. I just kind of curious about how you guys ended up uh, deciding Elixir was something worth looking into and how you came in and like are spending your time here in that community now. So do you want the long story or the short story? I have a, a three or four minute story and I have a, a, a several second story. Which one? Okay, let's go with the long story then. I was going to say we have a few minutes. So yeah, go ahead. Take a long, take the longer story. Okay, so it's an interesting story for me because I was looking for actually the next generation software for I Can Make It Better. So our goal with I Can Make It Better by targeting Ruby and Mongo um, and, and things like that, we were, we were looking for hyper-productive things to, um, to allow us to iterate quickly. And once we landed on a system that, um, that, that, was, that we knew would stick and we knew that we could sell, we needed a way to, um, to, to scale that to the moon. And so um, I was looking for solutions when I wrote seven languages in seven weeks. And I actually didn't find, I found a lot of ideas that I liked and I didn't find anything that I, I really wanted. And along the way, I found Jose's first prototype of, of Elixir and, um, and really didn't like it at all. So, um, when, so when I was looking, looking for functional languages that, that worked a little bit more like Erlang, 
I came up with with Jose's second pass at Elixir and saw one of his early talks. And and I basically jumped across the pond to stalk Jose. And I had um, some some article or maybe it was Dave Thomas's manuscript or something, but it was kind of um, you know a, a bunch of, of ratty papers definitely that I'd kind of gone through and um, and highlighted and actually printed out, which is rare for me. And so um, I went to Jose's talk and, and, you know, sure, it's not going to be weird at all. This, this 50 year old guy stalking you across, across an ocean for this language that nobody's using yet. So, uh, but anyway, I introduced to, uh, introduced myself to him and I said, hi, I'm Bruce. I like, like you. And, and he just, he looked at the papers on my hand kind of shook his head and just walked off. And I said, oh man, I've really embarrassed myself, right? And he came back with seven languages in seven weeks. And he says, I know who you are, Bruce, right? And and he said, so um, he said, would you sign this? And I said, would you sign this? And and so um, we we talked a little bit about Elixir and, and that it had a Ruby-like syntax, which wouldn't be super... Um, difficult for me to absorb. You know, I'm dyslexic. Uh, I'm really dyslexic. So languages like like Clojure just absolutely blow me up, right? Um, but the the Ruby the Ruby like syntax was approachable for me. Um, the the Beam and OTP was uh, was super important. So um, but it didn't have a web server yet and it didn't have a database layer yet. Um, actually Eric Meadows Johnson was starting to work with the Google Summer of Code to solve that problem. And um, so I asked Jose two questions. I said, is it ready? He said, no. And I said, what do we have to do to make it ready? And he said, um, I can't lose Eric Meadows Johnson. So um, we hired him. So that actually let him work on Elixir in, in part of his um, part of his time. And then we talked about Dynamo. And I said, Jose, you can't write a language and a web server. I know you're spectacular, but you, you, you can't do it. Nobody can. Um, so we talked about how to solve that problem. And um, we talked about throwing out this, this programming kit to build web servers. And that was plug, right? And so um, you know, we coded that. And I, I say we, meaning Jose, 100%. My attempt was called Switchboard. And it's some of the ugliest, nastiest, just... Um, reckless, awful code that you can imagine. Um, but when Jose saw it, he says, no, 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 a, a plug is a function. And so he wrote it out. out and, um, and three months later, we had Chris McCord and, and Ecto was, um, was well underway. And, um, and we um, talked to my boss about using Elixir and he said, yes. And we started, um, gosh, what has turned into what, James, a seven-year migration? Is that right? Yeah, long time. Yeah. No, but you know, most of that's working on new features and we kind of pick at it when, when we had time, but yeah, that's how I came to Elixir. So, uh, my story is uh, similar, but different. Um, I've worked at a bunch of companies building web apps for a long time and I keep seeing the same pattern and it like haunts me this pattern of, um, in the web world. All we want is these like long interactions with people and we live in this stateless world. So what we do is the first part of every request 
is we do 30 queries to reestablish the state of the world that we just forgot a few seconds ago after the last request. And then we go forward and make one tiny step forward. And then we forget everything again so that when the next request comes in, we can do 30 queries to put it all back and make one more tiny step. And I kept thinking there has to be a better way than this, right? And like, if you look at web advancements over the years, most of the things we're doing are to mitigate this problem, right? Redis and things like that. Oh, well, we don't have time to go to the database to do the 30 queries. So we'll put them in Redis. It's a lot faster. We'll do the 30 queries there instead. You know, it's ridiculous. And uh, I wanted a way where I could have a sustained interaction with the user. And uh, a, a buddy of mine I used to work with had told me years ago that Elixir could do this. And I ignored him. Uh, and then I went and finally played with Elixir. And there's actually a hilarious tweet exchange uh, with us where I go back and I'm like, did you know Elixir could do this? And he's like, yeah, I told you that uh, many years ago, you know. Um, so thank you, Nathan, uh, for telling me about Elixir. And P.S., you were right. Um, and we just built uh, my team. I, I can make it better. We just built a new product uh, in the last three months. And it is going live on Tuesday. We'll see its first real usage. And this is uh, the first time I've actually built with this model of we just have a sustained conversation with the user while we're having it. And I, I cannot impress on you enough how radically different it is to build a web application this way. But Having to do the 30 queries to reestablish what's going on, it's gone. You don't have to do it. You just don't. You can just remember what's going on, like you're having a conversation with somebody. It's amazing. It's incredibly liberating. Also, like the sweeping effects it has through the system are mind blowing. Um, like when we use our old application and you go around to the various pages and stuff, you know, it's let us do this billion queries so we can load this giant something data and show you some, you know, snapshot of where things are. In the Elixir one that we just built, everything is live because we're having to like pub sub it to get it over to a different channel anyway. So it's totally free to show a page and just change the number on the page when we get some pub sub message or whatever, right? And it's all just live and immediate and it feels different. It feels like a just a live thing that's happening now. Uh, so that's my, uh, my quest. And uh, I think I have finally, yeah, found what I'm looking for. It's amazing. I loved in Bruce's answer how he hires Eric and then later asks his boss about using Elixir. <laughs> <laughs> Just about like that. You know, we, we were, um, you know, uh, Paul knew that we needed something. And, um, you know, he's a, he's a very much a, a, a startup visionary and um, he sells things by building new features. And um, so we were, we were kind of, 
Um, we had a very feature-rich, maybe too feature-rich system. Um, and um, some of the things weren't built with our old architectures in mind. Um, so, yeah, yeah, but it's, it, it was, um, you know, very shortly, you know, I, I told, I told um, Jose right then that, that we would help find Erica home. Um, and then, you know, the very next trip out across the pond to the Erlang user community, EUC, I think it was 2012, um, maybe 2013, um, we brought Erica. Awesome. Well, I think we're coming up right onto the about, about the amount of time we have, and we don't want to keep you guys for too long. Is there anything else you want to mention uh, quickly before we go to picks? Yeah, really quick one for me. So I am launching a, um, a sabbatical, if you will. So I am um, actually going to reprise the seven languages in seven weeks um, over, over a year, and we'll see if that sticks and, and if I do it for longer. Um, but the idea is to um, is to be a tour guide through languages, um, and we'll do um, six or seven um, in a year, and we'll use a subscription model. So there'll be videos and um, and a book that's um, you know we'll, we'll an announce a partnership to soon, and you can probably guess who that is, and and um, and we'll um, try to interact with with a lot of the language learning services that are that are online now. So it should be a really cool experience. Hope you can join us. That's Groxio, G-R-O-X.io. Awesome. All right, let's go to picks. Eric. Uh, I have something. a question about that real quick. So is yeah. that in addition to the seven languages that are in the current book? Uh, yeah, so basically the whole model is that the user community will vote on the languages that we do. Mm. Uh, we're doing the first one right now, it's Crystal. I vote assembly language. <laughs> oh, ooh, yikes. It's not funny. A good way to do that one is the NAN to Tetris book, which is awesome, by the way. Yep. Or Java bytecode. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's, let's go to picks. Eric, uh, do you have one? Yeah. So <clears throat> um, I'm going to pick uh, my other podcast, uh, Smart Software or Smart Logic, again. Um, if my timing is correct, in two days when this comes out, we're going to be talking with Renee Foring about Credo. Um, that was a pretty cool episode. Um, so you can check that out at uh, podcast.smartlogic.io. Um, and we'll have, uh, what, five episodes out at this point for season two, talking about different, um, or talking with different developers from the Elixir community about specific topics like distillery, Elixir script, and witchcraft. Mm. Um, so yeah, check that out. Awesome. Josh. Yep. So I have two picks. Um, the first is uh, just a blog post. It's called famous programmers work times and it's uh, a histogram over a, a few different repos to show just the hours that commits happen from various uh, programmers you've heard of. So Guido and Lennis and others. Um, it's just, just fun. Nothing earth shattering there. Um, although I will say that uh, the PHP developer, his hours are the most uh, the most packed, like basically all the time uh, working. Uh, no particular times that stand out. Uh, I found that just sort of interesting, maybe from a psychology perspective. Uh, but uh, there's also urbit.org, which is, um, it's really cool thing. I might have mentioned it before, but it's a distributed computer. So it's not, not exactly blockchain-ish. But it's a, it's a distributed computer and an operating system and actually it's sort of programming model. It starts with a very tiny um, functional programming language 
and uh, builds a slightly larger uh, sort of assembly style uh, programming language on it, and then you build stuff in that. And it's really, really neat, if for no other reason than to completely change the way you have to think about writing software, because it is unlike anything else you've done. Anyway, so that's all. Cool. Michael. All right. I got two this week. Um, the first one is a, a pick of a book. Um, this is Lance Halverson's book, Functional Web Development with Elixir, OTP, and Phoenix. When I was reading the first few chapters of the book we're talking about today, um, and they were talking about the functional core, it really reminded me of Lance Halverson's book. Um, and uh, I love that both of these books really place an emphasis on the fact that when you are in a functional language, there might be some differences in the way that you choose to model your data, as Bruce talked about. Um, and also that uh, taking your time to decide how you want that model to look uh, pays dividends in the long run of your um, project. So um, I think it's a great companion to the book we're talking about today. Um, my second pick is, uh, I think this is a repick from, um, from Josh a few weeks ago. Uh, Josh talked about boundaries, a presentation by Gary Bernhardt. And um, this, this presentation has been just sticking in my brain. It's been around for a long time. Um, but again, as I was reading the first few chapters of uh, James and Bruce's book, uh, I've been, it, it brought me back to this idea of boundaries, the way that Gary Bernhardt talks about them. He, his, his usage of that word is slightly different. But one of the things he talks about a lot is that if values are at the boundaries of your system, then it gives you a lot of flexibility. Because for instance, you might choose to um, make this be something that you, you're calling between a bunch of different functions and uh, you have as many options as possible as long as you have the right set of data. And so if that value is the boundary in your system, it gives you a lot of optionality. Um, but also you could then choose to do things concurrently because whenever you send a message to another process, it has to just be some kind of a value. And so um, this is a really interesting, I don't have a lot of well-formed thoughts about this, but all these ideas about what boundaries make sense in your application um, are, are just kind of all simmering in my brain. And Gary's presentation is a big part of that for me. So I uh, wanted to pick that again. Um, thank you. And I hate you to Josh Adams for ruining my brain with such great picks in previous episodes. <laughs> I love it. Chuck, do you have something? Yeah. Um... So you guys are picking all these awesome books and technical uh, tools and things like that. Um, I've been working on adding features to the devchat.tv website. And uh, we used to get um, recommendations for topics and things through user voice. The problem with user voice is that their system's a little bit restrictive and very expensive. And uh, so I was basically paying way too much for uh, a system that didn't do everything I wanted it to. And I found a much simpler system that does a lot of what I want it to. It's called Canny. That's canny.io. And uh, anyway, so they, you know, it's the same kind of tool you would use for like feature requests. Um, and uh, yeah, they have uh, an embedded widget that you can put on a website. So, and then that's one of the major things that I wanted. Uh, user voice kind of took over the page when you put their embed thing on. And it still kind of took you back to their website and it didn't show all the options the way that I wanted it to. And this is much nicer. So, uh, canny.io. Um, if you go to any of the podcasts on devchat.tv and they just click on the suggest a guest or topic, um, then it'll take you in and you can actually upvote and downvote the, the topics. You can suggest topics. You can do a whole bunch of other stuff with it. 
Um, and it's relatively simple. So anyway, go ahead and uh, take advantage of that if there's something you want to hear about. And then I'm also going to shout out again about Elixir Comp. Um, I am probably going to make it to it. I'm not 100% sure yet. Um, but yeah, hopefully if I'm there, we'll, we'll see you all there. Nice. I've got two. Uh, one is it's a hex package called Mixed Test Watch. And I spoke about this at our recent Utah Elixir meetup. If you're in the area, in kind of the Salt Lake City area, uh, come on out and visit. Uh, but this mess, this uh, library is awesome. It's, it says, uh, because TDD is awesome. And I use this a lot. Uh, so it's basically, if you have your normal mixed test, kind of uh, that you're running your test and you're probably running it on a single file or something like that. If you just add mixed test and then a dot watch, after you've installed this library, then it can just watch your files for uh, changes. So as soon as you hit save, it reruns those tests that you have already set up. So that's one. Uh, then the other one is I watched a uh, webinar from Bruce uh, that he gave in May and I, a link to that. And so he, it's, it's, he kind of says that this is from kind of inspired by an excerpt or something from the book. And I liked the approach he took. He was like building a rover, uh, like a, you know, just in code uh, using that would move uh, in a 2D direction, but he was doing it with structs and showing how to build the tests and just the patterns of how you uh, manage state in a struct and, and in a more functional oriented way. And so I love that. I wanted to share that one. So that's it for me. James, do you have something you want to share? Yeah, I do. Um, it was super cool to hear Michael shout out the boundaries talk, um, which I have to uh, plus one that pick. It's excellent uh, and has been stuck in my head for years and years. So when Michael says, when I'm reading this book and thinking about the boundaries talk, there's probably obvious reasons for that. Um, and uh, continuing in that theme, uh, I am a big game fan. Anybody who ever listened to me on Ruby Rogues knows that I love game picks. So I'm going to make some game picks. Um, the, and I'll use Gary Bernhardt uh, in my picks as well. I want to recommend RimWorld, which is a game I'm completely obsessed with. And uh, instead of telling you why you should play RimWorld, I'm going to read you four tweets from Gary Bernhardt real quick. So here we go. A RimWorld story. I had 20 Labradors. A colonist stacked their kibble regularly, but died, and I didn't assign anyone else to it. The Labradors got hungry and ate the only thing in their allowed area, hundreds of bottles of beer in the storage room. Beer has little, maybe no nutrition, so the Labradors kept eating it. They were instantly very drunk and began vomiting everywhere. The whole colony was covered in Labrador vomit, too quickly to clean. Everyone's mood went super negative, and people started going berserk. Half the colonists were attacking each other because of the vomit, the other half trying to clean the vomit, but the Labradors are still drinking beer and vomiting faster than it can be claimed. Then, of course, an enemy group raided the colony. No way to defend. Most of the colonists were in mental breaks. All of the humans died, but the drunk Labradors lived. 10-10, RimWorld Colony. If that does not make you play a video game, you have problems. That's all I got to say. Uh, so uh, that's one game. Two other picks real quick. Um, if you're into 
designing games at all, uh, you have to check out Pico 8. It's an imaginary game console that never actually existed, but is super fun to program for. Um, it's the kind of thing where uh, you can draw a sprite in the editor and write five lines of code, and you're up and running, pushing arrow keys, moving your character around the map. There's nothing faster. It's great for kids. Um, absolutely check that out. And uh, then uh, piggybacking off of Mark's pick of the mixed test watch. Um, actually, I don't use that because uh, in my Ruby years, I found a Ruby gem called Rerun and it's still one of my very favorite tools in all of programming. Rerun is a Ruby gem you install. It gives you a command line executable and that command line, you call it and you can pass flags to set like file patterns. So like in Elixir, it would be like star dot uh, opening brace, EXS, comma, EX, closing brace, right? Which would get all uh, Elixir script files or uh, source files. And, uh, and then the rest of the command is the command you want run when those things change. So you can use Rewind and just set that Elixir file pattern and then mix test scale or whatever for the command you want to rerun over and over again. But I use it for everything. Like when I'm writing Elm, I just set it to recompile Elm every time I edit some source file or things like that. It's amazing to have a command line utility that you just enter one line and have it repeat something whenever you do something. Um, that's it. Cool. Bruce. So I've been obsessed with live view. And um, so my pick is a Tower of Hanoi implemented on LiveView. But the, the twist is that the user interface is an SVG graphic, right? Which you can render with LiveView. It's just text. So um, I love this idea. I, I'd love to see um, components built with, with SVG um, using the whole embedding framework that Chris and the team have put together. Awesome. Well, I had a blast talking with you guys and I know, uh, I know a lot of the other guys have really enjoyed this. Um, if other people like listeners would like to connect with you or follow you, where would you direct them to go online? For me, it's Red Rapids on Twitter, also on grox.io. Um, so right now it's pretty much a placeholder site, but within the month we'll launch the, um, the seven languages in seven weeks follow-up called Programmer Passport. So grox.io and Red Rapids, all lowercase, one word on Twitter. I'm Jeg2 on Twitter, J-E-G and the number two. That's usually where I hang out. Great. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bye. Thanks for having us. That was a blast, guys. Thanks for the invitation. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.